Please take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5. title of the message this morning is Fornication Among You. We come to a topic today that is of great importance to the church of God, particularly in the society in which we live. We live in a sex-crazed society. Even for men and women who would actively seek to avoid sexual sin, billboards, television commercials, and even newspaper ads reflect that we live in a society which, to which various degrees of nakedness and sexual perversion are regularly placed before people's eyes are almost commonplace in our society. We live in a culture that craves the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it is not uncommon to hear of sexual sins entering not just into society as a whole, but into the church as well. Never has there been a generation that has had such easy access to sexual sin. Throughout most of history, sexual sin has to be sought, or at least had to be... um, done in such a way that it would require a great deal of risk to one's reputation to fulfill his or her sexual lust. But in this age, in this age, sexual sin is accessible from the comfort and the privacy of our own homes in a way that it's never been before in history. The television and the internet have opened the door for sexual sin to become rooted in our society like never before, and it has become rooted in the church as well. Now today I'm going to preach a message on sexual sin. We'll talk about exactly the the definition of that in a moment. However, let me just remark that this idea of fornication is going to come up numerous times in the next couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians. I wanted to hit this today even though perhaps this may not be the best place contextually in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 5 to preach a message on fornication. We'll come back to it in 1 Corinthians 6, but I wanted to preach it here to get us on the same page in regard to what Paul is speaking about or what Paul is speaking against as he enters into this first major chunk of rebuke in the book. And so today we're going to talk about sexual sin. The King James Bible regularly calls this fornication, which we will define today as any sexual act outside of the designed boundaries of biblical marriage. This would include sex outside of marriage. This would include pornography, various casual forms of sexual misconduct, such as sexting, any sexual conduct outside of one man and one woman for life. Now, the Bible does have a few other terms that it regularly uses to refer to certain deviant sexual acts. The Bible uses the word adultery to define sexual acts of a married person with someone other than his spouse. The Bible also uses the word uncleanness to describe the deviant sexual perversions of homosexuality and bestiality. Though I will use the term fornication today, and that is the term that's being spoken of in 1 Corinthians 5, and as we'll see, the sin that's being committed is indeed fornication. Yet at the same time, I believe that this message would apply to all forms of deviant sexual misconduct, regardless of the particular word 
that is here in the text. So let's take a look today at three foundational lessons regarding sexual sin. Three foundational lessons regarding sexual sin. And remember, we will be coming back to other concepts in regard to sexual sin, but these are the foundational concepts that every one of us needs to understand in regard to this, these sins. Number one, the first foundational lesson found in verses 1 and 2, fornication is physically shameful. Fornication is physically shameful. Take a look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. Fornication is physically shameful. We have a situation in the church of Corinth that is wholly indicative of the problem the church was facing in regard to sin and carnality. Paul begins by mentioning that fornication within the church body is commonly reported. This word commonly is a Greek word used four times in the New Testament and carries the idea of something that is complete, something that is pervasive, something that is well known. The implication is that this fornication that was being conducted by this man in the church, now I don't mean to imply that everyone was committing fornication, that it was pervasive in the sense of its number, but this particular element of fornication at least is well known to the church, is pervasively known. Believer and unbeliever alike knows about this fornication. Not only was this fornication very public and open in its character, but we see as well that it was extremely perverse. We've already talked about the character of the city of Corinth. In the time of Greek power, the city had such a reputation of being sexually perverted that throughout the entire Greek empire in their glory day, some 150 years prior to Paul's being in Corinth and uh, several years after that when he was writing to them, in this glory day, all throughout the Greek empire, the prostitutes were called Corinthian girls. Now, things had probably settled down since Roman occupation. After all, the city had been completely destroyed and had sat desolate for 50 years before Rome rebuilt it. There was probably a, a a different flavor to the church at that time. However, one can still understand the various sins that would accompany, the vices that would accompany a city, a large city in any empire. And among the unbelievers, the sins found in the church of Corinth were so lewd and perverse, was so lewd and perverse that even mentioning it would be a surprise. They would blush. They would not even name. It would not even be named among the Gentiles this particular sexual sin. Now, the only thing mentioned about this sin is that a man in the church was in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Now, the fact that she is so designated as his father's wife instead of being designated as his mother helps us understand that this was most likely not his biological mother. Most likely this was his stepmother. We know divorce is another issue that was somewhat common in the church of Corinth. We'll see later on in the book uh, Paul speak to this um, problem with divorce. And so it probably would not have been all of that unusual of a situation to have uh, people in the church, believers who had been in divorces, who had been divorced in the past. 
Now Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 tells us this, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become saints. 1 John chapter 2 verse 16 says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Paul told the Roman church in Romans chapter 16 verse 19, For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. I am glad therefore on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. All throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, we are going to see warnings against fornication. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul will say this, Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth without the, is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 8, Paul will say, Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, talking about the, the nation of Israel in the wilderness, and as they also lusted, neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand there is only one framework given in God's Word, the truth of God's Word, in which God has given humans the freedom to fulfill their sexual desires. Only one. And that framework is marriage. Paul will go on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Any sexual act outside of this framework is a deviation from God's intent, God's design, God's will, and God's word. And on the authority of God's word, we can state that it is shameful. But the act itself was only part of the problem in the church of Corinth. Notice with me again verse 2. Paul says, And ye, that's the church, are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Not only was a man in the church engaged in shameful fornication, but the response of the church itself was shameful. Paul tells them that they are puffed up. Now, this is the second time that Paul has used this word puffed up. It's actually one word in the Greek in the book. In chapter 4, verse 18, he uses the word to describe those who claim Paul would not come back to Corinth. It speaks of an obvious pride that overshadows a person's speech or actions. When a person speaks, when a person acts, it is obvious that he has a pride in and of himself. It's this, this nature of being puffed up. In light of this fornicator in the church, rather than mourn and lament the testimony of God and the breach of God's word as, as the church ought to have, they did nothing. They exercised no church discipline against this man. It would appear that they, as a church, did not even speak against his actions. And this is shameful as well. The man was engaged in fornication, shameful fornication, and the church shamefully ignored his sin rather than defending the testimony of God and the purity of God's church. Fornication is shameful. And if any under the sound of my voice being called a believer in Jesus Christ actively takes part in any form of fornication, you need to know 
that you are operating in active opposition to the will of God and the Word of God. And we'll talk about that more in just a little bit. First point in verses 1 and 2, fornication is physically shameful. Second, in verses 3 through 5, we see that fornication is not just physically shameful, but it is spiritual as well. It is spiritually devastating. Paul continues in verses 3 through 5 to command the church to take immediate action regarding this fornicator. Look with me in verse 3. He says, For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. There is no tolerance in the words of Paul concerning this man's sin. When a person in the church is openly defying the revealed word of God, he needs to be removed from the fellowship of believers. It's interesting, Jesus Christ had give, has given to us the prescription for church discipline in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. He says this, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Notice that in this case, the sin was already public. It was not just one man recognizing the sin of another man. This was a public sin that the whole church knew about. We saw that from verse 1. That means that the first steps didn't need to happen. The first steps of making things known privately, then known to a small group, then even known to the church were unnecessary because it was already known to the church. And when it's known to the church, the man ought to have gotten one of two options. He either repents of his sin or he is out of the church. And that is why Paul makes it very clear immediately what needs to be done to this man. Question we might ask is this, why so soon? Why so serious? Well, because sin see, is a taint. And it will destroy a church. And it will destroy the testimony of God. Fornication is very serious spiritually and it must be rooted out at all costs. Thus Paul calls upon the church in the first half of verse 5 to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. We must be careful to understand based upon our knowledge of other scriptures what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not saying that the church has the authority to damn this man to hell. Notice they were not delivering him up to Satan for the destruction of the spirit, but rather for the destruction of the flesh. Jesus Christ would say in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to kill both soul and body in hell. This man's soul could not be delivered unto Satan because the church had no authority to do so. Now, Paul is not telling the church to do him any physical harm either. Paul would warn the believers in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 14, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. Not that he might be personally injured, but in 2 Thessalonians it says that he might be ashamed. Paul is not implying that the man has gone past any point of no return. 
Paul taught the believers in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so there is a point for restoration after being overtaken in a fault. So what is Paul saying here? Well, he's saying exactly what we have read throughout the sermon. In accordance with the teaching of Jesus Christ, they are to remove this man from the assembly and treat him as if he were an unbeliever until he stops acting like one. Now, I will say that the second half of this verse, where these actions were intended that he might, that his soul might be saved, look at the second half of verse 5, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, implies that uh, Paul seems to think here that he, he perhaps is not a believer. And that is the best inference we can make from this, that Paul recognize this man's sin and if he if he is not going to repent if he is going to rather be removed from the church for this then it would be a good indication that not only should he be treated as a publican and a sinner or as an unbeliever but that he is indeed an unbeliever so they are to separate from this man in order that he may be ashamed for his sin they are to separate him from the assembly with the expectation that if he repents they will restore him in the spirit of meekness But without fail, they needed to get this man out of the church because fornication is a spiritual plague and it can spread and it can sink its talons deep into the heart of a man. Now perhaps you have listened to these two points today and you have recognized the sin of fornication in your own life. Or perhaps you have known of the problem for some time but find yourself under the control of this sexual sin so that your every attempt to curb these lusts and these desires have ended in failure. May I just encourage you. God has never given you a command in the Bible which He is not able to enable you to obey through His grace. Living a life pleasing toward God has nothing to do with our ability to avoid sin. It has everything to do with God giving us the grace to overcome sin. It's not about you It's not about your strength or your ability or your circumstances. It's about God's enabling grace to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And it comes when you submit your pride to Him. James chapter 4 verses 6 through 10 says this, But He giveth more grace, wherefore He saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Do you want victory over that sexual sin? Quit trying to do it on your own. Submit yourself to God. Admit your sin. Admit your inability to overcome your sin. And watch as God's grace is poured out upon you. Now, I don't say that to the exclusion of you getting help from the church. The Christian fellowship is here to confess our faults one to another and pray one for another as James 5.16 tells us. Do you need accountability? Good. Get accountability. Do you need to change some habits? Good. Change those habits. Do you need to get rid of the internet? Well, then get rid of it. Do you need to get rid of the television? Well, then get rid of it. 
But victory over sin always begins with humble submission to God and to His Word. If you begin there, the rest will follow. Point number one, fornication is physically shameful. Point number two, fornication is spiritually devastating. Well, we've made it all the way through verses 1 through 5. I'm going to give one more point here, and it's not necessarily a point uh, in, in direct relation to fornication. It's more in relation to the reality of this man's fornication in the church. Point number three is this. Church carnality is crippling to church discipline. Church carnality is crippling to church discipline. It seems apparent that there were those in the church that recognized the seriousness of this offense. At least we know the house of Chloe had recognized it, for the house of Chloe had told Paul of the things that were happening in the church. But there's little doubt that there were others that were not happy with this fornication. And so the question is, why was it allowed to continue? Why hadn't somebody just stopped this? I remember hearing a story about a church where there was a major controversy. The controversy was over a book, terrible book, called The Shack. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. It was written by a man named William P. Young in 2008, and it really took the evangelical world by storm. It portrays a 48-hour encounter in the woods between a man named Mac and three characterizations of the Trinity, of the Godhead. God the Father was portrayed as a sassy black woman, God the Son as a carpenter, and God the Holy Spirit as a young Asian girl. It mischaracterizes God. It avoids using Scripture almost completely on purpose. And it presents salvation as something to be discovered from within yourself. It is the very embodiment of New Age pagan spiritism. It is not of God in any way. Now, when the shack got into the hands of people at this particular church that I heard about, there were many that, in their spiritual maturity or lack of discernment, thought that this was a great book. There were others that recognized this book to be the heresy that it is. But because the carnality was so rooted in the church, and division defined the circumstance, every man was left to have his own opinion on the book. There was no public denouncement of its heresy. People just moved on as if there was nothing wrong. And to this day, as far as I know, some six years later, five years later, who's to say if there aren't people in that church that are still dealing with that, who are still reading that book, who still think it's wonderful? How could it be that a church could allow error in and that there could be no correction? See, this is the danger that confronts a carnal church. When there is not enough confidence and boldness to stand firm on the truths of God's Word, error is left to rot the church from the inside out. When there is not enough leadership to cut out the infection, it's allowed to eat away even at the healthy members of the body. And beyond just the sin of fornication that had plagued the church of Corinth, this situation reveals the deep-rooted lack of discernment that was in the church because they thought on a worldly level rather than on a spiritual level. Plain. Now, as I've mentioned, we will be addressing the sin of fornication a couple more times in the months to come. There will be a, a brief interlude where we're going to jump into uh, some messages on Thanksgiving for a month, during the month of Thanksgiving, and then we'll be back in the, the book of 1 Corinthians. 
Paul is going to hit this concept of fornication hard again in chapter 6 and will reference numerous times throughout the remainder of the book this sin. But I felt it important as we began the reproof of these chapters to lay the foundation for a biblical perspective on the serious nature of this sin. Fornication is physically shameful and it is spiritually devastating. If there is an element of fornication in your life, you must get it taken care of. If you need help, get it. Speak to me. Speak to another church leader. We will help equip you with the tools needed to be victorious in this battle. As I close, let me just say one more thing to parents, particularly those of you that have um, young men in your family. Parents, this world is a minefield. If you have internet, get filters. If you have television, monitor it closely. If you have movies that have that scene, that sex scene, or that scene that is indiscriminate, get rid of it. The spiritual health of your children is not worth a few hours of entertainment. Men, fathers, you know as well as anyone that when something gets into the mind of a man, it stays there. Now, ladies, you don't have the same problem with being as visual, most of you, as men are. But men, you know what I'm talking about. A life of battling the sin of fornication is a very high price to pay for carnal amusements. This is not a game. It's a battlefield upon which we fight every day. Do not let your guard down even for a moment. Let's pray together.